0: Reflections on the Gospel of John Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 11 It's funny because this is the one thing the modern world won't hear anything of. The idea of having a Lord is the supreme insult in our world. It's the, it's, uh, it's, uh, the obvious acknowledgement that we, are, that we are craven cowards, sh- uh, af- afraid to assert ourselves or some other thing, you know. And Jesus is saying it's the key to happiness. The key to happiness is to know who your Lord is. And the key to unhappiness is to have about two dozen of them and to deny every one of them and to pretend that you don't have one and you'll just go nuts. And so I think it's quite astounding. He creates the master-disciple relationship. He totally confuses it or reverses it. The master is the servant. The servant is the master. And then he says, the servant is not greater than the master. And if you understand this, you'll be happy. By the way, this unhappiness goes back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve refused to subordinate themselves, even to God. The idea of subordinating oneself to, to another is just intolerable. And they refuse to subordinate themselves. So the serpent can say, How would you, how would you like to be equal to God? Oh fine, let's let's do it. That's really the it's the it's the, the original sin is resentment. It's the refusal to subordinate. It's a refusal to see oneself in a subordinate position or to tolerate a subordinate position. And Jesus is saying there is a subordination. There is an inevitable subordination to one's Lord. But don't misunderstand that. The Lord is the servant, and the servant is the master. You know? So it's a tremendously paradoxical situation. The only Eucharistic image in this story, of, uh, to this point, is, this, is is a kind of parody of the Eucharist. Having said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and declared, I tell you most solemnly, one of you will betray me. This is, there's a little comedy in this story, by the way. The disciples looked at one another, wondering which he meant. Now you have to get into the little story. The disciple whom Jesus loved, this is the first mention of this disciple whom Jesus loved, who was a, many exegetes think it was John, son of Zebedee. But in any case, it was this community's apostolic representative their eyewitness who knew Jesus. And they referred to him lovingly as the disciple whom Jesus loved, in often in tension with Peter, who was, who was the key disciple for the other churches, the mainline churches. So it says the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to Jesus. Notice, he was sitting right there next to him. Simon Peter signed to him. He, Simon Peter's way down at the end of the table, <laughs> so he didn't quite. So he has to sign, get wave to the disciple whom Jesus loved, and said, "Ask him who he means." So the disciple whom Jesus loved, leaning back on Jesus' breast, said to him, "Who is it, Lord?" And Jesus says, It is the one to whom I give the piece of bread I shall dip in the dish. He dipped the, a piece of bread and gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Well, what this, the little internal thing here is that Peter and the Petrine churches, when push comes to shove, they have to turn to John for their exegesis of what Jesus really meant. Jesus says something, that didn't quite get it. And so the Petrine churches have to say to the Johannine community, what did he really mean? What's he talking about? <laughs> and this is precisely how the how the this evangelist regards his and his community's understanding of Jesus. He thinks it's superior to the to the other churches, and he thinks they need to catch up. So, it's possible to have a complete a, a, a gospel that is as sublime as this one is, with a, a, the human quality mingled in there with it. And I I see this. What's important about this, seriously important about this, is that this community regards its, its, uh, its privileged understanding of Jesus as having to do with its willingness to lean against the heart of Jesus. The gesture of leaning back against the heart of Jesus in order to understand what he meant is one that is absolutely incredible. We could fill this room many times over with New Testament commentaries that have been written in the last 50 years. Many of them very, very good. But I think, let's just put it this way. This evangelist is right. One understands this message not by uh, taking apart Greek language or studying comparative religious uh, text. and so One understands this by leaning against the heart of Jesus. I want to go back to what I said was the most important passage in the New Testament, or at least this week's most important passage in the New Testament, where Jesus says, Now sentence is being passed on this world. Now the prince of this world is to be overthrown. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I shall draw all men to myself. I must say that I feel that if I, if, I, if I were asked to put the work of René Girard in a nutshell, I would say that his supreme contribution to our world and, and our time is that he has provided us with the anthropological... An intellectual tool for appreciating the depth and significance of that passage. Sentence is being passed on this world, conventional culture, and the prince of this world, the accusatory satanic principle, is to be overthrown, is to be overthrown. It's a gradual process and when i'm lifted up from the earth namely the crucifixion i shall draw all men to myself draw again gradual term i shall draw all men to myself not a stampede not a not uh, the world running towards him because that it has to be gradual if it happened like that if it happened all of a sudden it would have to be it would have to happen as a result of a blind mimetic phenomenon. It has to happen gradually. It has to happen historically. And so, what I'd like to, and of course, this passage is just, in a way, an explication of that Zechariah passage where, where he says the king comes on a donkey, he comes to dismantle the, the implements of, organized violence and he comes to extend his reign to the whole world and I have two things I'd like to offer as commentaries on that in this colloquium I attended a few weeks ago in a paper that uh, Ryman Schwager gave uh, uh, Schwager is an Austrian theologian who's uh, written some important books on Gerard's work and other things, he quoted in his paper a German theologian, uh, Karl-Josef Kuschel, and I don't know the, work, the man's work, but Kuschel uh, did a study of the uh, references to, to Jesus in contemporary German literature, and Girard quoted, so I'm quoting somebody who's quoting somebody who's quoting somebody. Jorga quoted a German poet, Paul Conrad Kurz, who said this about Cushel's work on, uh, on the relevance of Jesus in German contemporary writing. He says, quote, Cushel proves that the great figure to which contemporary literature refers is not Odysseus, Don Quixote, Hamlet or Faust, not Marx, Nietzsche or Lenin, but Jesus himself. Not so much the Jesus of I am the way the truth and the life, but rather the Jesus of ecce homo. This is when Pilate brings him out he says behold the man. See, he's just he's he's scourged and mocked. But rather the Jesus of ecce homo, the Jesus who is misunderstood, alien, repudiated, and ultimately rejected by the representatives of society. In other words, Cruz is saying that Kuschel has demonstrated that even in secular German literature today, with all of its uh, antipathy for the the biblical and Christian tradition, that it is still the Jesus who is the mocked one that has the place of centrality in literary representations in today's world. Well, an even more dramatic version of that, Cush, Cushell is a Christian theologian, Elias Canetti, I quoted from Canetti's work last week, Crowds in Power. At the end of that book, Canetti uh, is, uh, is Jewish. I don't think he was religious. I, think he was, I don't think he was a religious man. Uh, but he's Jewish, he has no, uh, he's a neutral observer, if I could put it that way. Um, and he says this at the end of his book on crowds and power. And I read it as a, as a commentary on the Johannine Jesus saying, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Kennedy says, quote, The image of him whose death Christians have lamented for nearly 2,000 years has become part of the consciousness of mankind. He is the dying man and the man who ought not to die. With the increasing secularization of the world, his divinity has become less important, but he remains as an individual suffering and dying. The centuries of his divinity have endowed the man with a kind of earthly immortality. They have strengthened him and everyone sees himself in him. There is no one who suffers persecution for whatever reason who does not in part of his mind see himself as Christ. And I would add, which Kennedy does not, but I would add, there are fewer and fewer people who look on the persecuted one without seeing that one as Christ. Kennedy concludes by saying this is the legacy of Christianity and it is, his word, inexhaustible. Finally, as for the idea that Jesus says uh, the prince of this world is to be overthrown, there is that passage in Luke where Jesus says, I watched Satan falling like lightning from heaven. By the way, one last thing. When it says that Satan entered into Judas, he fell into the grip of, of accusation. There's nothing more powerful than that. It's when one finds when one suddenly feels that one can with absolute assurance point the index finger and say, there's the one, he did it, she did it, they did it, there's a tremendous intensity that comes from that. And it's precisely that intensity that it seems like such a relief from the banality of ordinary daily life, you know. Now we know for sure There's something tremendously intoxicating about that. Satan is really the transfiguration of human self-delusion and the evasion of our moral responsibility for what we do. Satan is a myth. Now, the satanic is not a myth. The satanic happens. But it happens. We fall into the grip of Satan. I don't think there's any doubt about that. We fall into the grip of Satan. But I think when... When the Luke and Jesus says, I see Satan falling like lightning from heaven, he's announcing that Satan, as a metaphysical entity, will be deconstructed. And we'll realize that Satan simply represents a metaphysical projection of our own responsibility for our own violence and cruelty and insensitivity. So in the line of French thinkers... Uh, André Gide said, "Satan's greatest trick is to convince us that he does not exist," and René Girard says, "Satan's second biggest trick is to convince us that he does." You may have noticed over the last several weeks, sort of what I've taken as my as my charge, as my task, is to try to understand the biblical tradition generally, the gospel specifically, um, and uh, the cultures that have derived from them even more generally, I've tried to understand them uh, in two ways. Anthropologically, I've tried to to get at the anthropological significance of the biblical revelation and its uh, cultural after-effects. And I've tried to underscore what I perceive to be the The significance of the spirituality that derives from the biblical tradition, particularly Christian spirituality. What I'm trying to do is to take a look at the effects of the biblical tradition on the unfolding drama of human history, and at the same time to see its effects on the unfolding drama in one's own life, which is the purview of. Christian spirituality and to see the relationship between those two things. There's probably no place in the biblical canon better suited for combining these two things than the discourses, the final farewell discourses in the Gospel of John, the discourses that begin with with the Last Supper and conclude right before the Passion story begins. This farewell discourse is a biblical genre familiar biblical genre you know Moses gave his farewell discourses in in uh, Deuteronomy and so we have the we have uh, essentially the law the mosaic law in in the form of his farewell discourses so it's a very prestigious genre in the biblical tradition and nobody has used it in the new testament as explicitly as the fourth evangelist and with as much theological depth. So I I look forward to pursuing that this morning. But because we'll be trying to combine this anthropological and the spiritual, I I want to begin with uh, the anthropological, with a little meditation. What is history? It seems to me that the question, what is history, is a question that has has, uh, dawned primarily on those cultures under biblical influence, a question that has dawned on us over the last few centuries. Uh, The work of Hegel stands out. Hegel's work is flawed, I think, immensely flawed, but it stands out as as an example of uh, someone who realized that one had to come to grips with history. What is history if we were to understand who we are and where we are and what we're doing? To say that the biblical revelation is, historic, is a historical revelation is an understatement. It would be more accurate, I think, to say that what we think of when we say the word history is itself a product of biblical revelation. And I, of course, don't mean history in the form of a catalog of objective events, though such catalogs certainly existed pre, prior to uh, any uh, biblical contribution to the idea of history the concept of history is a catalog of events preoccupied with power and prestige generated by conflict and by the political effects of such conflict existed prior to israelite historiography and independent of its influence but such catalogs are as fundamentally meaningless as the exploits with which they remain enthralled Shelley's Ozymandias is as much a commentary on this kind of history as it is on the swollen figures upon which it fixates. You'll remember Shelley's sonnet. It goes like this. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip, the sneer of cold command, tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on that pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. So here's a figure who felt himself to be right in the center of history. The Great One. And in retrospect, he is non-existent, a non-being. What Shelley sees when looking back is what the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament evangelists see when they look forward. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the end will come when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Here the biblical revelation is seen, the New Testament revelation is seen as something that will deconstruct all the myths of power and might. Real history as we know it, that is to say critical historiography, begins with the sustained and morally coherent critique of the Israelite monarchy in the 8th century B.C. It is the history of demythologizing, And Shelley's poem takes its its place in this history, the history of the effort to point out the pomposities, perversities, and misrecognitions upon which our personal collective self-assessments depend. The fundamental subject matter of this history is not discrete events, but the dynamic of gradual demystification itself. The dynamic in the context of which the events become intelligible. So the real subject matter of history is history. That is to say, what is going on here? Not just this thing happens and this A happens and then B and then C and then D, but the real subject of history is what is happening as we go from A to B to C to D. The question is what is the driving force of history? To speak biblically, I would say that today the driving force of the critical historiography to which the Israelite prophetic tradition gave rise is what the fourth evangelist called the paraclete. So here we have this little term used in such a strange way, or at least by modern standards probably in some strange way, this esoteric term that, that no one can translate so it's we bring the Greek uh, into many of the English translations, the Pericles, this strange little apparent uh, uh, curiosity, esoteric thing, is, I think, the driving force of uh, human history in our world today. And I want to try to draw out that it's it, it's not a great discovery of mine. One has one all we have to do is read the text carefully and then pick up the morning newspaper and. Sooner or later, it will dawn on us. Inasmuch as biblical revelation is historical, we cannot arrive at the universal and timeless meaning of any given historical event by abstracting from it or by treating it allegorically or symbolically. This is what I think we have tried to do in the past. We have seen certain events in in the biblical canon uh, or outside of it, and we have sensed that these events have universal meaning and we've tried to get at that universal meaning by going to the universal that is to say by backing away from it and seeing it on this horizon of uh, allegory or uh, symbolization or something like that and that's a it's a uh, virtuous desire we have there to see it in its larger implications but I think we don't realize how grounded in history the revelation is, and so we we must stay within the historical context in order to get to something that is that is transcendent with regard to that historical context. There's a paradox here. There's, in any anything having to do with the biblical revelation is always paradoxical. So the paradox here is that uh, if one wants to move out of the uh, nitty gritty, sometimes uh, sometimes. Uh, Uh, crude historical form into a universal, one would better do it by sticking with the historical circumstances than by abstracting from it and allegorizing or symbolizing. The universality and timelessness of, of such events comes to the fore when we locate them in their historical setting, the historical setting that gave rise to them in the first place. For example... Everyone who's ever read the Gospel of John carefully realizes that it has universal and timeless implications. But these implications are not, I think, the, the mystical cosmic Christ implications that we tend to draw out of them today and that have been drawn out of these texts in the past. The living Christ so central to the fourth Gospel is palpable in our world. The paraclete who is, according to this gospel, the spirit of the living Christ is, as I said, the driving force in human history in our time. It is the paraclete, if I could put it this way, it is the paraclete that has Christianized the West. And it is the paraclete that is westernizing the world. And when I say that, I'm not trying to Valorize the so-called Christian West, which, of course, we're not Christian; we're hardly Christian anymore, except in, in anthropological sense, uh, and certainly not trying to valorize the Westernization of the world. I think these phenomenon, like all, I think this phenomenon, like all historical phenomena, is a, is a mixed bag, morally and intellectually and every other way, historically. But there is something going on in the world that is pretty clear. And I think if we see, it's fairly clear for us to see the westernization of the world. If we look back with some kind of historical clarity, we, we can see, I think, the Christianization of the West. So I'm not trying to say that the West is Christian or that... Uh, the Westernization of the world is an altogether positive thing, but I'm saying it's what's happening in our world and i what I want to try to argue is that what is happening in our world, whether it's happening perversely and negatively and violently and in a in a terrible way or in a in a positive and and hopeful way, is happening because of the paraclete but as I said, I don't want to abstract from the historical situation so even before we get into these discourses, I want to try to set them in their historical (coughs) setting because I want to try to show that we can get more out of that than by leaping to the cosmic Christ that seems to hover over these texts. As I've said before, in the late first century, the Christian movement was in crisis for many reasons, but one... Two, two of the reasons that come out that relate to this pa- these passages in John, uh, and again I've mentioned them before. One is that the apostolic generation was dying. Now, the death of the apostolic generation was a crisis for all the churches. I think that's, it, it's, it's in response to the death of the apostolic generation that we get the Gospels themselves. That's one of the main uh, uh, imperatives that, that brought the Gospels into being because once the apostolic generation is gone... We must have an authoritative story, since we no longer have eyewitnesses. We must have an authoritative story to pass on to others. And so there you have the the impulse to write the Gospels in the first place. But the the crisis involved in the death of the apostolic generation is a much more severe crisis for the Johannine community, precisely because the Johannine community shunned those uh, institutional structures that were so much a part of the other churches, the churches that gave rise to the Synoptic Gospels, for instance. So, in those other churches, the uh, the, the the apostles die, the apostolic generation dies, those who knew Jesus die, but there is in place a way of appointing new bishops and presbyters and de- designating authority and carrying on the institution and so on and so it's less of a crisis it's a it's a crisis still but not as much you may remember in in uh, Samuel Samuel is a prophet and uh, he he gathers the the Israelite movement together under his prophetic leadership but when he gets to the end of his life it turns out that Samuel first of all prophecy doesn't pass by heredity or its prophecy is is an inspired thing, and so you can't just pass it on naturally to the next generation and so and it and it turns out that Samuel's two sons are scoundrels, so even if they wanted to pass it on, these two guys uh, don't show much promise, so they come to Samuel and they say, "Give us a king, like the other nations have. I mentioned that it perhaps even last week it 's a very it's a It's a very sobering moment because they want to do what the other nations are doing, which is precisely what they're supposed not to do. They're supposed to not do what the other nations do and to be the and to carry out their own unique mandate in the world. but they do that because suddenly the leader is dying, and there's no way to to uh, continue his leadership and so they want to switch and go to a, a hereditary monarchy so that these these crises that happen when the leader dies won't be that won't come one after another. Okay, well that is something of the background of this situation, especially for the Johannine community. They had no, they had precious few institutional structures. They had they had committed themselves. <clears throat> this community had committed itself to the premise that the Spirit would guide it, and that it did not have to have these institutional structures. And you know this idea is very much a part of Christian history from the very beginning up until today. The the tension and I think it's often a very creative tension or it could can be between the the need to and the value of institutionalization always parentheses always best best accomplished by those who realize that every attempt to institutionalize is a, is, uh, is is an act of apostasy, but still in all that it must be done okay. so that um, so that that I think produces uh, some interesting creative tension. The spirit always has the the potential for breaking into on, on these institutional setups and blowing the whistle on them and throwing the doors open and starting afresh you see. But the tension between institutionalization and and the movement of the spirit is very important. Well, you can say, looking back on these churches, this isn't this is too general. But you could say this: you could say that at the end of the first century, the Johannine community was a community that lacked some of that paradox because it had too few structures, and many of the other churches were lacked that paradox because they had they had settled in too comfortably with these structures. So. I got into that simply to point out that that it's it's a bigger crisis for this community when its eyewitness dies than for the others because it doesn't have the wherewithal to carry on. And in historical fact, this community fell apart uh, not long after this gospel came into being. Precisely because the centrifugal forces were too great for it, it had uh, no way to hold it all together. The other thing that contributed to the crisis at the end of the first century was the fact that Jesus, Jesus hadn't come again. It's very clear that the early church, the primitive church, I use that word without any pejorative, the primitive church expected Jesus to come soon in the lifetime of those who had known him on earth. And as this second coming didn't happen and didn't happen, uh, the churches had to either reinterpret its meaning or abandon it as an idea. Mercifully, they did not abandon it as an idea, but they reinterpreted its meaning. Of course, nobody, I think, reinterpreted it quite as profoundly as the fourth evangelist. In Second Peter, for instance, you get the uh, you get the author of Second Peter trying to reinterpret it, saying, "Well, you see, in uh, in the life of God, uh, a thousand years of our time is but a day." So it could be a long time yet or something you know which is which is a, a quaint and charming interpretive move but nothing like what John does John says Jesus yes it was true Jesus said he was coming again he gave us the assurance he was coming again and he has he has come together when we come together. He has come to us when we come together. He is among us. He is in us. He is with the Father. He is in the Father and we are in Him. And He and the Father are in us. So this evangelist understood the second coming in terms of what scholars now call realized eschatology as opposed to future eschatology. There is a future eschatological implication in John's Gospel. The, the, the eschaton, the end time. Uh, when, as as Paul says in Corinthians, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all the dominion, authority, and power, that will come. But if you don't live long enough for it, which you probably won't, it's you're not going to miss anything <laughs> because it's coming right now in you. You see? In you. And this is what just to take what passes for eschatology in our world is the idea of, of evolution, which I'm I, I feel fairly confident will be deconstructed in some way. I mean, I, I I'm perfectly happy with the idea of natural natural evolution. I'm sure it's a true uh, scientific premise. Uh, but as a as a as an as a as a reigning interpretive principle, I think it will uh, it it will collapse. As a matter of fact, some signs uh, indicate are beginning to do so. But one of the things that's missing, of course, in the evolutionary idea uh, and in the standard utopian uh, idea is that this this marvelous thing we're involved in is really going to be great stuff about a million years from now. (laughs) But meanwhile, we're just trudging right along, you know, bumbling. (laughs) None of that in the Gospel of John. Yes, future eschatology, but realized eschatology right now. He said, you know how he defines eternal life? Eternal life is knowing God and living in God through Christ right now. So uh, it's a, it's it's breathtaking what this evangelist is proclaiming about the meaning of Jesus' life and and death and continued life in this in the churches. I got into all this in order to say that if we attend to the historical circumstances that gave rise or that, that conditioned this gospel, we can see deeper into the implications of the gospel than if we abstract and speak in, in, uh, in, uh, in cosmic terms. I feel that we don't, of course, know the details of the construction of this gospel, but I think we can say this. Apparently, an eyewitness lived late into the first century. Apparently, he died towards the end of the first century. And apparently, his death was a big crisis for the church. And that part of that crisis was... uh, And that that crisis resulted in the gospel. Therefore, it's safe to assume that the imminent death or even the recent death, but I think it's more likely the imminent death of the, of the eyewitness that this community had, left its mark on the way the gospel was fashioned. If you look at the farewell discourses, you realize that the dismay at the imminent death of the beloved disciple on the part of this community corresponds almost perfectly to the dismay of the disciples at the imminent death of Jesus. In other words, you have, I think, we have in this gospel, a conflation of two historical events. The, as I would picture it, this is fictional but, because we don't know, but I'll just present it as a, as a heuristic device. Uh, this beloved disciple, is his death is imminent, and he begins, to, and he remembers himself, what it was like when he and his friends first realized that Jesus's death was all but uh, all but a sure thing. He reali- he remembers what a devastating realization that was, and what it was like suddenly to have Jesus gone. And he realizes that, in some attenuated way he now is in the same position with respect to his community that Jesus was within, with respect to him. So knowing that, he tells the story of Jesus preparing his disciples for his own death in terms that will prepare the Johannine community for the death of the beloved disciple. Now, to, to see it this way takes nothing away from the theological depth of what's in this gospel. It, I'm not arguing as some modern scholars do, you know, these are not Jesus' words. I don't think that matters. They're the gospel. They're the gospel truth. So we don't, it doesn't really matter. But if this community has an eyewitness, which it uh, almost undoubtedly did, he is remembering, you know, as I told you, remembering is a very important word for him. Remembering is is a creative act of faith, not mythologizing, absolutely the opposite of mythologizing. To mythologize is to remember by leaving out the things that would lead to contrition. In the biblical world con- the 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 only measure of consciousness is contrition. And so if you to mythologize is to leave out or obscure those things that would lead to contrition. To remember in the Johannine sense is to remember the events not in not uh, in a way that makes them revelatory. You know, revelation means the opposite of myth. It means to reveal what's been hidden. So that it makes them revelatory, and and uh, leads those who are being apprised of this memory to the deeper implications of the events that are being recalled. So this evangelist is now remembering Jesus's approach to his own death in such a way that it will he will prepare his own community for his death. I think. And I think that's a fruitful way to read the gospel. I think, ironically or paradoxically, if you read the gospel that way, the depth of Jesus' discourse comes across more powerful than if you simply read it as the historical Jesus speaking these things. Because you also get the mystery of the Spirit moving through history. Well... To begin then, I'm going to move... These these discourses occur in chapter 14, 15, 16, 17. I'm going to be moving back and forth. I'm not going to be dealing with them in chronological order because I want to begin with this idea that, um, that the evangelist is preparing his community for the shock that the disciples felt at Jesus' death. So you get language such as the following. In a short time, you will no longer see me. Then in a short time you will see me again. Now this is Jesus speaking. And this is the, the, the evangelist or the eyewitness whom the evangelist is essentially uh, uh, recording. This is the, the evangelist remembering his own, his own past and his own religious uh, conversion, the journey of his own religious conversion. In a short time, Jesus says, you will no longer see me and then a short time later you will see me. When Jesus says this, the disciples automatically say, what does he mean? What is he talking about? In a short time, we'll not see him, another short time we'll see him again. What is this short time, they say. <laughs> we do not know what he means when he says a short time, which is exactly what the church at the end of the first century was saying. Jesus was supposed to return in a short time. Where is he? What does he mean? Second Peter says, well, a thousand, day, a thousand years is as a day. What is it? You see? And Jesus says, no, the the leaving and the returning are not going to be measured in days and chronological time, but the leaving and returning have to do with the conversion of heart. The whole whole effect of the leaving and returning turns around the question of the conversion of the heart. So he says, I tell you, most solemnly, you want to figure out all this leaving and returning stuff? You want to get on schedule? Here's how it works. I tell you, most solemnly, you will be weeping and wailing while the world will, will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Now, this is what the leaving and returning is. The leaving and returning is, the leaving is the sorrow, and the returning is when the sorrow turns to joy. And that's when I'll be back. And then he uses this metaphor of a woman in childbirth. Because her time has come, uh, she suffers because her time has come, he says. But when she has given birth to the child, she forgets the suffering in her joy that another has come into the world. And so it is with you. You are sad now, but I shall see you again and your hearts will be filled with joy and that joy no one will be able to take from you. I shall see you again and your hearts will be filled with joy. These are causally related. And when your hearts are filled with joy, that's when you'll see me again. Seeing in this gospel is always a synonym for believing. To see is to believe. To believe is to see. So he's saying, you remember, so this is really the story of the birth of Christ. This, this evangelist has no story of the birth of Christ because Christ has, is from the beginning. He existed from the beginning. This is the cosmic Christ. The other, well, at least Matthew and Luke, have the stories of the birth of Jesus. But I think you could see two, two births. The birth of Jesus, Jesus bar Joseph, the Nazarene, you see, and the birth of Christ. Well, one might inform the other one. The birth of Jesus bar Joseph happens... Where in a shabby little shack see in a ramshackle shack laid in a feeding trough where will the birth of Christ take place in heartbreak, despair, sadness you see in the in the manger of your own emotional catastrophe following the death of Jesus. And Jesus says later on, he says, unless I go, and I think we can read in this parenthetically, unless I go the way I'm going to go, namely the cross, the paraclete whom I will send cannot come to you. I must go. You must undergo that heartbreak in order for the paraclete to come to you because the paraclete will come to you the, the paraclete's effect on you is that he will make it impossible for you not to empathize with every person who's, who you see in my position. Every person you see persecuted, you will, re, you will see Christ in him. And the paraclete will be doing that to you. And how can he do that to you until I get crucified? Unless I go, parentheses, the way I'm going to go, namely the cross, the paraclete that I'm going to send to break the spell of the sacrificial system, the, break the spell the sacrificial system has on you, he can't come and do that unless I go as I'm going to go, namely the cross. So the the, the coming, the second coming, or the birth of Christ in the community and in the person of faith happens as a result, uh, happens in the uh, in an emotional manger in the same way that the birth of Jesus happened in a in a animal shed. He says in chapter fourteen, I will not leave you orphans. Again, he doesn't say you will not be orphaned. But he says, I will not leave you orphans. There's it's 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 a haunting little thing. There will be a moment of or a period of orphanage. But I will come back to you. And on that day, he says in chapter 14, you will understand that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus, The, the risen Jesus is not recognizable in the Synoptic Gospels, or in this one. Uh, so he's saying, you're, you're not going to recognize me. So I'm going to give you the clues to show that I'm there. Here's the clue. You will understand that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. And when you come to that realization, the second coming has happened. I will be there then. That's how you'll be able to tell. And he says, anyone who loves me will be loved by my Father and I shall love him and I shall show myself to him. So that, again, this Having Jesus revealed to us comes through love and faith, and this goes to the to the question that uh, to the to the matter of faith and knowledge. You know that Aquinas and so many other people dealt with. Does do we go from knowledge to faith? No, we go from faith to knowledge. Faith is Christian faith. Is the if I could you know the polysyllabic faith is the epistemological force par excellence epistemology meaning how we come to know what we know our tradition says you, uh, let's put it this way let's be cautious i'll put it this way our tradition says that faith is the supreme epistemological force in our world faith leads to knowledge science was a little thing we created along the way when faith made it impossible for us to believe in magic anymore. But the driving epistemological force in the world, according to the gospel, is faith. Then he says, in chapter 16, he says, I've been talking to you metaphorically, allegorically, less so in this gospel than in... Well, I mean, he uses... uh, poetic images in this gospel, but less metaphorical than in the synoptics. But still, no, he says, I've been speaking with you metaphorically, allegorically. The hour is coming when I shall no longer speak to you in metaphor, but I will tell you about the Father plainly. The Greek word means boldly. I will boldly reveal to you the truth that has that is contained in more subtle ways in my metaphorical speech. But I think we almost could take this word metaphor as a symbol, as a, as a synonym for speech itself. I will proclaim to you boldly, and, and by the way, the Greek word for boldness here refers not just to speech acts, but to any act of manifestation. You know, the prophets often would have a prophetic gesture, which would be a bold gesture, a bold demonstration of the truth like Jeremiah breaking the pot outside the gate of the Jerusalem you know or some or walking around with a with the uh, in harness indicating that they were going to be they were going to be captured by their historical enemies or something like that so a, a bold statement of the uh, of uh, of the revelation can be something entirely other than a statement as a matter of fact the boldest of them always are so when Jesus said i'm not going to speak to you metaphorically anymore, we can almost read into that I, the time for words is past. The revelation will have to come through the living word of something more dramatic than that. And of course, that is the cross. He says this. I've been speaking to you in metaphors, but now he says, I'm going to stop talking metaphorically. And And the apostles say, Oh, great, you're going to stop talking metaphorically. Now we're going to get it. And he says, Before the cock crows, you will deny me and leave me alone. So he's talking, when he says uh, he's going to move from metaphorical to non metaphorical language, he's talking about moving from talk to the cross. And they think he's talking about moving from poetry to prose. (laughs) (laughs) Typical human being. And the other thing about the cross is that it is not a metaphor, it is not a symbol. Again, I think we do not do justice to it by regarding it as metaphor or symbol or allegory. He says, I'm not going to speak in metaphors anymore. I'm just going to speak one more time and it's going to be decisive and bold and complete. And, there, and that can refer to nothing except a cross. If that's so, the cross can never be a metaphor. Cross, if you want to get the universality of the cross, you have to stick with its facticity the fact of a public execution, then the universality of it explodes. But if we say, oh, yes, it's universal, and we run from it back up here, get, a pers- get the panorama, and begin allegorizing and mytholo- or, or uh, doing symbolic interpretation, we don't get to the real universality of it. He says... Earlier in chapter 14, I shall not talk to you any longer because the prince of this world is on his way. The showdown is about to happen between Jesus and the prince of this world. Who is the prince of this world? The organizing principle of this world is on his way to have a showdown with the paraclete. Jesus is the first paraclete. He says as much in this gospel. He says, I will send you another paraclete. We'll get to the paraclete. Oh, we're getting to it right now. Uh, So he says, I shall not talk to you any longer. The prince of this world is on his way, and now we're going to have a showdown. The prince of this world and and the revealing son of the Father, the true Father, or, to go back to that those passages in chapter eight, uh, the son of my father is going to have a showdown with the son of the father who is a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies, and so he said i 'm not going to talk anymore and here he says i 'm not going to speak metaphorically i 'm going to i 'm going to leave you with a bold manifestation of the truth now this is where we this is where the The the, uh, amazing uh, audacity of the gospel, I think, comes through. He says, chapter 14 I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Paraclete. Clearly, Jesus is the first Paraclete, who will be with you forever. This second Paraclete will be with you forever that spirit of truth whom the world can never receive since it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him because he is with you and he is in you. So, who's the paraclete? Well, you know the the Greek term means, it's variously translated, the counselor, the advocate. The Greek term meant the the, 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 the lawyer for the defense, uh, the one who stood in place of the accused and argued his case. Uh, the paraclete always has, as Raymond Brown points out, a, a uh, forensic role in the world. It argues on behalf of its client. And it turns the accus- accusation against the client, against the accused, it turns that accusation back on the accusatory agencies and institutions. You see. So that's the role of the paraclete. To cause the accusatory gesture to rebound on the accusers. And it is, he says, the spirit of truth. You know, in Greek, the word truth, aletheia, means, lethe means to forget. The prefix means, uh, is a negative prefix, means to stop forgetting. The spirit of truth, because the reason uh, the accusatory system continues to live on is because we always forget the truth of the, of the situation, what the past, we forget what really happened. And we carry around in our heads a myth of what happened. But the paraclete's not going to let us do that anymore. It will be the spirit of Aletheia. It will be the spirit of remembering what we could not mythologize. So the spirit of truth will be with you forever. The world, as the world exists, when Jesus is talking in the first century about the world, he means the world that has to exclude the paraclete in order to carry on in its ordinary way. The world exists, as I've tried to argue in the past. Uh, the conventional world, the culture world, exists by periodically convening or reconvening its social uh, consensus at the expense of its victim. And that world can only exist if it can misrecognize the arbitrariness of its selection of victims and all the rest of it. So when the paraclete comes and makes that misrecognition increasingly difficult, the world begins to deconstruct. The cultural structures begin to come apart. Speaking of the paraclete, Jesus says the following. I still have many things to say to you, but they would be too much for you now. Now there you have the whole problem of history in a nutshell. This revelation is historical. It gradually dawns on the human race that, in a way, is its is its is the mercy that's inherent in it, because we're only asked to be to live up to moral mandates that we're capable of living up to, and if the full revelation were to hit Abraham on Mount Moriah, he wouldn't have sacrificed the goat. And instead he would have come down the hill and all hell would have broken loose. This is what happened to Moses when he went up the mountain. He came back down, they were worshipping a golden calf, 3,000 people died. In other words, if we tried to eliminate all the crazy sacrificial uh, aspect of human culture overnight, we would descend into that... Into that uh, uh, terrible cauldron of violence from which the sacrificial system saved us. So it's it's a progressive thing. This is I say this not in order to uh, to uh, urge us to tolerate any sacrificial rituals that we can recognize, but only to say that we're only allowed to recognize those that we're morally capable of doing without. You see what I mean? It's when, and in, in our future, the, our descendants will be able to recognize those we can't recognize. And they will be morally capable of living without them. We can't recognize them, probably because we can't live without them. I still have things to say to you, but they would be too much for you now. There's something tremendously forgiving in that statement. And it's as true of us today as it was of the. Of, Christians of the first century. He says, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will lead you to the complete truth. He will lead you to the complete truth. Now, here's, the, the spirit of truth is the paraclete. The paraclete is the, is the counselor for the accused. Now we have an interesting question. If the paraclete as paraclete will lead us to the complete truth. That means that the paraclete, as the defender of the accused, will lead us to the complete truth. How could someone who does nothing except defend victims from accusation lead us to the complete truth? How could that be? It could be, it could. that could be true under only one circumstance, and that is, that the accusatory phenomenon is the source of all human delusion. That's the only circumstance in which it would be conceivable that the defender of the accused could lead us to all truth. All human delusion is generated in that that, uh, social vortex constellated around the uh, common accused or common enemy. And that if that system could be shattered and to the extent that it is we will wake up from the spell that it has cast on us and we'll be led to truth gradually but what I think is so remarkable about this passage is that he's speaking of the paraclete as paraclete doing his role as uh, accomplishing his mission in the world which is to to, to uh, deconstruct the accusations against the potential victim. The paraclete breaks down the social consensus generated by accusation and thereby frees us from the myths that generate that are generated by that consensus. This is really the heart of the whole discussion of the paraclete in these passages. He says, unless I go, the paraclete cannot come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And I think, as I said, that has to do with if I go as I'm going to go on the cross, then you will get the paraclete. That really is the thing that will send the paraclete into the world. And then he says, when he comes, the paraclete, he will show the world how wrong it was about sin about who was in the right, and about judgment. Couldn't be clearer. That's what the paraclete's going to do. Going to show the world how wrong it was about sin, about who was in the right, and about judgment. Imagine you find a diary stuck away someplace, diary written in the 17th century from some little village in New England, And you open it up, and the diary has uh, the following account. This little village uh, went along uh, okay, and then one one season the crops failed, and the rain didn't fall, and uh, certain diseases uh, happened among the cattle. And uh, there was a lot of uproar, social uh, friction, and so on. And finally it was discovered that this woman... This uh, old widow woman lived out on the uh, just at the outskirts of the village. It was discovered that she had been uh, she had been casting a spell on the crops and the cattle. She was subjected to a trial of sorts, and it was shown at the trial that the accusations were true and she was uh, run out of town. her house was burned, and the crops lo and behold got better the next year, and the rain fell, and the cattle recovered and uh, So that's that. Now, you have this diary in your hand, you've just read that account. Is it true? Of course it's not true. Well, now, when you read it, you say, the reason I know it's not true is because I don't believe in magic. But really, that begs the question. Because why don't we believe in magic? We don't believe in magic because we gradually ceased to find accusations of magic plausible. As Gerard said, we didn't stop burning witches because we invented science. We invented science because we stopped burning witches. There is an epistemological force, a revelatory force, at the heart of Western inquiry, scientific and otherwise, that, that is determined to get past the myths. and the myth par excellence is the myth that justifies the accusation justifies the victimization. We now, when we read that story, and even if it had no reference to magic in it, if it were a story about some Jew poisoning the well, it's possible to poison wells. people used to do it. But if we read a story about it, and then we'd said, well, and this, this, uh, this fellow was uh, burned at the stake and everything got better, we would know it's not true even though it's, it's physically possible for it to be true. It's not a magical account. We would know it's not true. And the question is, how would we know it? We would know it because that, that midrash which says if everybody thinks he's guilty, he must be innocent. We know it because the paraclete is working in our world. We, we are able to understand our world. We have a knowledge that is not scientific, but it is rigorous. It has, it has, uh, it's, it, it, it's epistemologically sound. And it is the knowledge that is being given to us by the Paraclete, if I could put it in biblical terms. Let me quote to you what Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. He says, You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the pagans. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how to speak or what to say. What you are to say will be given to you when the time comes because it is not you who will be speaking. The Spirit of your Father will be speaking in you. Now, this, is, this does not mean that not to worry because when push comes to shove, you will be given great eloquence. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. It means that if you find yourself after the revelation. He's talking about the future. After the revelation, and progressively so, if you find yourself in the place of the victim, the very fact that you are in that place will give you moral authority. The moral authority will begin to shift from the accusers to the accused. And you need not brush up on your rhetoric. They will have to start brushing up on theirs. And that's precisely the point I want to make when I tell you about the Billy Budd episode in a few minutes. The accusers will have to go study rhetoric. You don't have to study it because slowly but surely the moral authority will be yours and not theirs. And that's the periclete operating in our world. Eric Gans, who's a cultural uh, critic and analyst and thinker, said, Christianity's impact on the West is a tribute to the power of its basic conception, which is the absolute centrality of the position of the victim. The moral significance, says Gann, of this position is enormous. Amen. So what I want to do is take a, a, a few little instances that will flesh out a little bit this idea of the paraclete operating in our world and how it operates. The first is the story of Captain Cook's visit to Tahiti in 1777. Cook had been there before. This was a return visit. Uh, His earlier visit, he had befriended this uh, young Tahitian, Omai, who went with him to Europe. He came back as he had learned enough English to be Captain Cook's translator when he came the second time. They had not been in Tahiti long before the news came to this little village that the nearby village was arming itself for a war with them. So this village went immediately onto a war footing, which always required in the first instance that it perform a human sacrifice. Preparation for war was human sacrifice. We have to ask ourselves, why would that prepare one for war? No doubt it does, because in the original setting, the human sacrifice, which may have been more of a a spontaneous phenomenon, generated the esprit de corps required for military campaigns to be successful. No doubt. In this case, it's been ritualized and now it ha- and mythologized. So they perform a sacrifice. What happens is they knock some poor uh, guy in the head with a rock and kill him, and then they bring him in. They perform the sacrifice after he's already dead. So already this is a weakened sacrificial scene in the sense that it's not as graphic and dramatic as the really primitive sacrificial um, things are. But nonetheless, it was a, a human sacrifice. Captain Cook is invi- and his officers are invited to witness the, the last part of this rite where the, where the uh, slain victim is, uh, the ritualization of the slaying takes place. Captain Cook does what all those who have been touched by the gospel virus do. That is to say, he starts to ask questions about it. He challenges it. And so he says to them, why do you do this? Why don't you just go get your spears and bows and arrows and get ready? And Captain Cook's real earnest sort of guy, you know. He thinks that just good old-fashioned rationality is going to cut to the heart of this thing. And so, here's what here's a section from his diary. They said why why do you do They killed they killed uh, some pigs and then they and then they had to kill a human victim and they performed a ritual over the over the, the slain pigs and the slain human. And this is from the Cook's diary. They said that it was an old custom and was agreeable to their God who delighted in it, or in other words, came and fed upon the sacrifices, in consequence of which he complied with their with their petitions. In other words, they, they, they say to the slain, in the ritual, they say to the slain man, tell the God we need his help in this war. So this is the myth they tell themselves about the need for sacrifice. So Cook writes upon its being objected, however, that he had not that the god had not fed on these, as he was neither seen to do so, nor were the bodies of the animals quickly consumed, and that as to the human victim, they prevented his feeding upon him by burying him. but to all this, they answered that he came in the night invisibly and fed only on the soul or the immaterial part, which, according to their doctrine remains about the place of sacrifice until the body of the victim be entirely wasted by putrefaction, End quote. You see, they'd never had the question asked before. It's not as though they had answered it. Uh, what myth, myth doesn't answer questions. It extinguishes the mental vitality required to ask.